Good day, listeners. Welcome. Day Word is a podcast we started. The goal is to inform, offer diverse perspectives, and add a touch of humor where appropriate to events happening in Toronto and in our world that our viewers can connect with. We started this podcast to give thoughtful and purposeful perspectives. Toronto is home to us all, hence the name. We want to leave you with content that is a good use of your time. I am your host, Ahmed, the guy that will turn anything into a personal development moment, helping me to make today's episode a success. Are my brothers Hirsch, aka Hairline Still Intact. Barely. AKA Mr. I don't think outside the box. I live outside the box. I got my boy Hassan, aka Shazam. <laughs> I got Batter and Elsie joining me again today. The last two did not provide a fun name. My guess is that they're too cool for fun names, which seems to be a very typical Scarborough thing to do. Wouldn't you agree, West End Mans? <laughs> I know, I know. The West End ones are going to come too. Don't worry. Yeah, true, true. I'm the most yeah. impartial. How are you guys doing today? Trying to make it through this heat wave, sure. man. 30 degree plus humidity. Oh, it's too hot, too hot, too hot, lady. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get started. On June 24th, Toronto and Peel Region joined the rest of Ontario by entering into stage two of our restart phase. It means like businesses like restaurants, patios, hair salons, barbers, malls were set to reopen. And I know many fellas, myself included, and the ladies are excited about barbers and salons reopening. Now, gentlemen, have you guys gotten your post-quarantine haircut yet? Or are you guys playing it safe and waiting for stage three or phase three? I haven't had a haircut in four months, man. I'm trying to be innovative yeah. with it. So I'm trying to like do different. So I just <laughs> kind of just, you know, the Afro, is, the Afro is getting a little bit too much out of control. So I had to braid it up. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah you don't want someone breathing on you for 30 minutes. That's the easiest yeah. way to catch and have a guy who, like literally three inches from your face breathing on you. So <laughs> that's not a good look. Who will undoubtedly be telling some type of story to somebody. So I'm sorry. It's funny too. Yeah. Leaving, leaving you with half a haircut just to swivel around and just finish his story and come back yeah, to you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, what's been your uh, your worst haircut experience? I was telling you guys about this yesterday. I had an experience. So I went to this barbershop. They might hear this or whatever. Let's say I went yeah, to we, a we, barbershop. We don't do that here. It was in Toronto. But uh, go to this barbershop and get there. And my, my barber's not there. He's usually there every day, but he wasn't there. And he wasn't there the, the week previous, so I think he was on vacation or something. And there's bare man's waiting for a cut, right? So I'm not just trying to put my name at the bottom. I'm like, I go and I say, yo, is there anybody actually free? And he's like, you know what? We have a trainee. Just came off break. You can go with him. Go to the guy. Nicest guy ever. Top class. Top class. You know? Best attitude, whatever. I'm like, you know, I, I also had an important meeting. So I'm like, this is an important decision, right? So I go with this guy. I told this guy, yo, listen, important meeting. Do me nice, you know? Like... You know, it's a good tip. You know, I noticed nobody's coming to you. Like, you're nice and we're good, you know? And he's like, all right, no, enough said. You know, I got you. Don't worry. I got you. I got you. Guy starts to go lining me up. And the back of the clippers, like, as he's doing it, touches my skin. And it literally, I heard the sound of skin burning, like, singed. And I pull away and I was like, your thing needs to take a breather. Like, like work on some other stuff for now. Like, let that cool down a bit. Like, I think it, <laughs> I think it needs a break. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, true, true, true. I got you. I got you. No worries. No worries. Comes back. Same clippers. Hasn't cooled down one bit. Not a single bit. Still, if it was any hotter, it'd literally be on flames. Like, it would literally be on fire. And at that point, I'm like, all I have is my lineup left, right? Like, he has to go and do it, you know? And I'm like, all right, I just have to tough it out. This is a high-pressure situation, right? Guy goes and does it. Two twos later. Like, I'm literally feeling my head like this. It feels raw, like right on the line where my lineup is, right? It feels raw. I, I tell the guy, I'm like, yo, bro, I literally think you burned me severely, bro. He's like, nah, don't worry. It's just the aftershave. It's the aftershave, you know? Put some aloe vera on it. You'll be good, right? I'm like, Come on, son. Get the f out of here with that bullshit. I've never had to treat a wound after leaving a barbershop. And he's like, uh, bro, don't worry, don't worry. You know, it's not as bad as it, as it feels. It might just feel, you know, you haven't had a haircut in a while and all this stuff. I'm like, I have no clue why you're saying any of this. Within two days, I had a line, like a black line, all the way across my hairline from one side to the other. The guy literally singed a new hairline for me. And the problem is I went to my barber. And this is like cheating on your barber, right? I cheated on my barber with a trainee, you know? My hairline is actually like a quarter of an inch back from where it usually is. And he said, what the hell happened to you? He's like, is that a burn mark? Did you get cut? What is this? 
Did they spray alcohol after you got that haircut? I knew what I I knew what transpired. I already knew. I'm like, man's gonna have the cocoa light <laughs> on their head in the morning, you know. So I said, yo, I told the guy, don't yeah, give me alcohol. Give me alcohol. Like, let me actually disinfect it. <laughs> Literally a wound. <laughs> it hurts so bad because it's alcohol. It's not aftershave. So, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> a harrowing experience. You brought up an interesting point, and it's a question I've always asked myself whenever I go to a different barber. But is it considered cheating when you go to a different one? It's I, I think our audience needs to know. Is it is it cheating? Absolutely, it's cheating. Absolutely, it is. What? It is. Absolutely, it is. And it's and it's worse when they find out about it. You can see the look on their face. Like in like in Batter's case, yeah. Yeah. You know the crazy part? They can always tell. As soon as you get in the chair, no, like, always. So you were, at a, you, were, you were with another barber, weren't you? Like they look at yeah. the hairline and they always. can see the difference. They could always tell. Yeah. Intimate relationship. I think yeah. one of my favorite people, a part of this barbershop community, is always the guy who's there, whose his beard lineup and hair hair always looks on point, but you never actually see him get a haircut. And he always has the broom and he's always sweeping up everybody else's hairs. So you have no idea what he's doing. He's always yeah. there. He's always chiming in. And I'll credit um, the, the barber too. I'll credit the barber too. For most of us, long-term barbers have seen situations that you've overcome. They've kind of tracked your life, right? Is, these guys sometimes are working as therapists and barbers, right? So they're talking <laughs> through your situation. And guaranteed, one thing I know guaranteed is whatever challenge you have, the barber knows another client who has an even more messed up situation. But, but sometimes just, you know, from a customer service perspective, you can't spend hours in the shop. So sometimes you have to move with your profession and your lifestyle change, right? Exactly. You got to do what you got to do. I want to get into our say word moment. And this is the part that actually helps us from pivoting from our fun topics into our main topic. And I wanted our say word moment to be focused on Vince Carter. Here is Vince Carter with his first shot. Now, for our audience, Vince Carter, who was most recently for the Atlanta Hawks, announced his retirement on June 25th. Majority of Canadians, I'm sure all of us here on the call, revere him. And he's the one that laid the foundation for basketball in Canada during his time with the Raptors in 1998 to 2004. Kyle Lowry, NBA champion and the Raptors starting point guard, said a few months ago in an interview that it's a no-brainer for Toronto to retire Carter's jersey. And I'm sure for his critics and for his skeptics, a lot will probably say that no, because of how Carter left and which wasn't on good terms prior to his departure. Rather, you being the, the basketball enthusiast out of us five, do we agree or do we disagree with Lowry on retiring Carter's jersey? I agree. I agree. Like, I think people, under, like, people understand now the impact he had on basketball in Toronto. Like, if you lived in Toronto, I don't know if people remember, like, he was building basketball courts in communities that, you know, didn't have access to community centers where you could go and play basketball, where you could, like, do that safely, you know? And I know where I grew up, I used to, like, hope and pray, oh, I wish, you know, Vince Carter comes and builds a basketball court in, in my neighborhood, you know? And But that was a thing, right? Like, that, that was the beginning of a culture in Toronto where, like, people actually cared about the sport, right? His legacy is that he made the city a basketball city. You know, he made people care about basketball in the city. People were traveling across the border, celebrities, to come watch games in Toronto. You know, like Chris Rock was at almost every game in that 2001 season. Samuel L. Jackson. Samuel L. Jackson, exactly, right? Like, there were a lot of people, like, that was that was the ticket to come watch Vince Carter play in Toronto. You know, So um, my question becomes, like, not about whether or not it should be retired. It's more like, what's the sequence for the people that you want to show your respect to? And I think... How Lowry being the one to kind of bring this up is kind of uh, ironic or it's kind of fitting because it's my, like, my 100%, I 100% believe that the first jersey that should be retired is Kyle Lowry's jersey, you know? And I think, and you guys can disagree with me if you want, but the criticism was, you know, he didn't work as hard as some stars. You know, he wasn't in the gym like Kobe. He wasn't, you know, that was the criticism, right? Maybe he changed that over 20 years that he played. Of course, he must have played 20 years. But then it becomes like you, you compare that to Kyle Lowry. Kyle Lowry came to us as like a throw-in in a trade. He came to us, you know, after being bouncing around the league, multiple teams, being a bench warmer, being a role player guy, right? Came to us. 
And he had success, just like Vince Carter, maybe a little further down the line in this period, but he had success and then bounced in the first round, bounced in the second round, bounced the first round again, same team, can't get by the Nets, can't get by the Cavs, year after year, failing in the playoffs, right? And he went through that, same like Vince, right? And that's like the turning point. That's the breaking point, right? It's like when that got hard for Vince Carter, he left. When it got hard for Kyle Lowry, he put more work in. He's the guy taking the charges. He's the guy jumping into the crowd for loose balls. He's the guy, you know, on the floor first when, you know, the ball comes loose, right? And he created, like I said, he created that culture within the team. Maybe not in the city like Vince Carter broadly, but he created a culture within the team that, like, if you're the best player, you, you're still expected to do those things, right? And he went from, like, a not a nobody, he went from, like, a relative unknown player to a superstar, and he led us to a championship, right? I still remember, was it game four when he went up? When he went off in game six, we scored the first like 13, 14 points of the game. You can see like he loves this city and he feeds off of us and he embodies like the type of fan we are in Toronto. We're crazy. Like people now know like you play like that and the fans will cheer for you. If you take plays off and nights off, right, the fans become disengaged in Toronto because we, we do appreciate hardworking, you know, integrity, basketball players with integrity, right? Like. So yeah, sequence. That's my thing. I don't think I don't think he should be the first to be retired. I've heard people say that, and I, I totally disagree. Like I don't know if anyone disagrees, but you know that's that's my rant on the, the Carter piece. You know, I'm seeing Laurent writing down some notes. It looks like he's <laughs> about to he's get some, his keys. Uh, he's got some. He's just, got that. He's trying to read that like notes. Just a quick bit. Um, I, better, I do. I do completely uh, agree with you. Especially, I think it's more going to be an issue of order um, of how things are going to go about. And I do agree that Lowry should go first. He stayed in the yeah. city despite everything, and I do think that he needs to be recognized for that first and foremost more than anybody else. Um, side note: I, I did do those uh, basketball training camps that uh, Vince uh, was doing in the city when he was around. And just off the strength of that and having a poster of him in my room until I was in maybe like 2006, well after he went to New Jersey. And giving this city the beginnings of a basketball Canadian identity, um, the formations of it at least, his jersey should be retired because it's the inception of, 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 of us appreciating basketball as a sport in the city and not coming not at least not amongst us feeling like we're secondary to hockey. Why, even if the rest of the country might have felt that way, we didn't. Yeah. I know we didn't. There's an intangible to that, right? Um, in terms of the mm -hmm. culture he created and, and what he fostered. Laurent, mm -hmm. talk to me. Yeah. Um. So I agree. His his jersey should be retired. I want to state that first. I do want to say, uh, Batter, that uh, in terms of the criticism of him not working as hard as Kobe, he didn't. As the resident Kobe fan here, I just want to make that clear that he didn't work as hard as Kobe. So. He <laughs> did not there. work as hard as Kobe. Let's throw it down. Yeah, yeah, right. that out check. There, you know? Let's get tracks out of the way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But no check. one. Worked, not not many people worked as hard as Kobe. So that's no that's no indictment. Of, um, mm -hmm. In terms of your point about the sequence, in terms of Kyle Lowry being the first jersey to be retired, I I kind of feel like you're you're a Raptor fan, so some I kind of feel a little out of place commenting on it because Raptor fans should have the say in terms of who they want, whose jersey should be retired first. But from the outside looking in. I would say there's something that has to be said for being the first to do something. So their challenges, I think Kyle Lowry somewhat benefited from the foundation that Vince Carter laid and a number of other people laid, right? There are certain instances where he was on the receiving end of a lot of uh, criticism regarding uh, some decisions he made. He wanted to attend his graduation. He was pretty much ex yeah. excoriated for that, right? Uh, yeah. In this era of player empowerment, I don't think he would receive that level of criticism. In terms of global notoriety, if you look at the era Kyle Lowry was what came to Toronto in, that's the era of uh, the era of Drake, the era of uh, the weekend. Toronto has the, the the cultural relevance of Toronto on a global scale has exploded, right? So it's a lot more cool to be a Raptor now than it was when Vince Carter was a Raptor, right? Mm. So he was the first. I think uh, a lot has to be said for that, and the fact that he started the wave of appreciation for basketball in this city and the relevant the cultural relevance that he has like i'm pretty sure like a, a throwback vince carter jersey 20 years from now will be worth more than a throwback kyle lowry jersey no disrespect to I, kyle I agree so i think his relevance to this city i think he should be the first i wouldn't be i wouldn't be i wouldn't be offended if kyle lowry's uh, jersey was retired first but i just think uh based on what he had to go through laying the foundation 
I think he absolutely deserves it. And I don't agree with how he dealt with certain things and the disrespect that he had towards the city in leaving. But I think it would make a nice story and it would come full circle. I wanted, yeah. I wanted to quickly chime in because I think when it comes to Jersey retirements, usually they come chronological order. So I don't think Vince Carter's Jersey retiring first would take away from Kyle Lowry being the most beloved Raptor, maybe most important Raptor of all time. I think those two can coexist. And I think Vince Carter really opened people's eyes in Canada and Toronto to basketball. Like his uh, slam dunk contest was magical. His ability to get U.S. audiences interested, to have Vince Carter on national TV during weekends as a Raptors fan and seeing stars like Kevin Durant saying like, oh, I was a huge Raptors fan. I was a Vince Carter fan. Like that is unique. And I feel like Vince Carter is one of those elite stars. As you mentioned, Lauren, yeah, for sure. He didn't have the work ethic of Kobe, but I'm pretty sure he was respected by his peers, such as Kobe. Like, I want to play devil's advocate. So let's think about the arguments that people have made to not retire Vince Carter's jersey. One being that he wants to be traded. He wants to be traded. I'm going to take you guys back. This is a 2003-4 Toronto Raptors roster. Robert Archibald, Menge Batir, Lonnie Baxter, Corey Blunt, Michael Bradley, Chris Jeffries. <laughs> I'm not trying to be disrespectful to those old Raptors teams, but Vince Carter, but don't say Mil Palacios, fam. Come on out, names that like Vince Carter was trying to succeed with. You know what I mean? Like people criticize Vince yeah, Carter for wanting to leave. But why don't we talk about the GM? Like if Vince Carter had a GM of Masai Ujiri's caliber, like 100%. situation would have been different. The media went on a smear campaign when it came to Vince Carter. Raptors fans came to terms with, hey, there were mistakes made on both sides, yeah, both from the so organization bad. and Vince's standpoint. But and you know, he, this was before the era of player empowerment and all that. Empowerment, yeah. right? So the yeah. idea that Vince Carter can decide to go to another organization, he was also pioneering that, that phase, right? So yeah. I think he gets a bad rap, and I think there's no debate about whether his jersey gets retired. We can get into the semantics of whether it gets retired first. But in terms of importance to this organization, there's few players that will supersede Vince Carter from a marketing standpoint, from a brand standpoint, from an inspiration standpoint. We only have one basketball team in this country. And when you think Toronto Raptors, I guarantee you from people outside of Toronto, the first player that will come up, even with his current championship run, could be Vince Carter. So to just like bounce back off a couple of points, right? Like I don't disagree about the whole legacy thing. I think what Vince brought to the city very important. As a Raptors fan, I came to Toronto. I first came to Toronto in 95. That was the first year that the Raptors had a team. And my father was a was a very, very big basketball fan. So it was a big deal coming to the city and all of a sudden we have an expansion basketball team, right? So my experience as a fan, there was a life before Vince Carter and it was awful. There was a pattern that showed that maybe management wasn't as uh, supportive of the team as they should have been, that they were using the NBA franchise as a way to subsidize costs for the NHL team. Because, you know, as we know, like MLSC owns both the Leafs and the Raptors, right? And at the time, no one really cared about the Raptors because we didn't have anybody to care about, right? And so here comes Vince Carter, finally a reason to go out and spend on some players. We went, spent the money on Hakeem Olajuwon. I think the milk was expired when we got it from the store, you know what I mean? So, I so then, I was so happy about so then, that. So then there's like the appearance of like trying to help the team from GM's, the GM's perspective, right? That doesn't win you games, right? And so here comes Vince, you know, team, he leaves, right? And like people, there's like a carousel of players now coming in and out, in and out of the team. And Vince says, you know, if you're not committed to winning, if you're not going to spend on players, I'm going to leave, right? And there's something to be said about that. Because there's another player, Chris Bosh, who also experienced something like that. But Chris Bosh, if people remember, he was an animal with the Raptors. He was one of the best players in the league. He was hitting game winners. He was he was the guy, right? And playing hurt most games, like he did what he had to do to keep us in the eighth seed. And that's who we were. Just make the eighth seed every year. You kill your draft pick because you don't get a lottery pick. But you get that playoff money, you get that extra, you know, a few million dollars. And that's what we were as a team. We were the cash cow for another team, right? And so I really think for me, it's a slippery slope once you start honoring players for going through that because it's like there are other players. And how do you how are you gonna create a hierarchy of those players? Like I think Chris Bosch had less support than Vince Carter did, right? And he made he made something of it, right? And he stayed here 
what was it, six, seven years, right? And he only left to go to one of the best teams of all time. How do you compare the two? I don't know if you can compare the two. I think it changed with Lowry. I think with Lowry, it was like, it didn't matter what management did. He was going to play hard regardless of who was around him. And he would play with, if it was Fred Van Vliet or whoever it was, Revis Vasquez or whoever, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. that means something to me personally, but I, I, I leave it up for debate. Like this is, it's not as black and white, I guess. It's not. It's not. There's, there's no objective criteria for it. It's, it's obviously there's good points for for everyone and and and, and anyone can make the case. But I want to now focus our attention on a topic that I'm really excited about. Kanye West, rapper, producer, fashion mogul, made an announcement on the 4th of July. I see everyone smiling because I know everyone's excited about this. He announced on Twitter that he's going to be running for president, not president of Rockefeller, not president of NAACP, president of the United States of America. He'll be running as an independent, and uh, according to the interview he did with Forbes, the decision went back to as far as 2015, and the inspiration came to him while he was in the shower. Imagine that. Sorry to interrupt, but we're going to get the best press conferences of all time. Like, of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, that's going to be so curated. Yo, can you imagine like, Kanye West in a G20 meet? <laughs> Yo! <laughs> With like Yo. all kinds of world leaders and dressed up with the yeah. old mm, What I'm saying is, it's about whatever I want to make it about. Mm-hmm. This is my world. Yeah, that would be crazy. You, you how popular Kim Kardashian is like around the world. They're crazy popular around the world. <laughs> The announcement was made, met with a lot of criticism about his fit, about his experience, about where things are currently at in the election. But for our audience and for our listeners, I, I want to take a second and, and I want to give Mr. West the benefit of the doubt. I want to put aside everything that we know about his past, all about his antics, his eccentricism. And I want to, I want to ask this question. Is there any possibility that Kanye is going to make for a good president? Do, does he have what it takes? Is he going to make a good president? Well, I think that's, that's a, relative term, really, because yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of people in the United States who are saying that Donald Trump is a great president, right? So it's all relative. Now, if we're ta- asking me, and I Maybe think that's effective, a question. Effective, effective was a better word. With Kanye, it's an interesting case because, okay, so there's also like these undertones of like mental health issues. And like he has said before, like he's on medication and like he it's documented that he does actually have mental health issues. And so I ri- like, I don't want to risk sounding, you know, ableist or sounding like, you know, I don't appreciate that those are the real things he's going through. I also have to appreciate that this man is one of the most successful black people in the United States right now. Every time he's failed, he's come back stronger and he's come back and proved people wrong. He lost 200 million and he responded by becoming a billionaire, right? To him, he probably feels like he's invincible, right? This is the classic Kanye. He's trying to be, he's trying to, play out a critique at the same time as like doing something very problematic. I don't know. I think there are people that will dismiss it for the wrong reasons. There are very right reasons to dismiss Kanye West for running for president. Hirsch, I see you nodding your head. Yeah. Well, Kanye West is not lack for confidence. I think everybody in the world knows that. I want to approach it from a different angle because it's very easy to rail on Kanye and talk about uh, sort of his ambitions and his intentions. I I think Kanye is a product of a greater issue, and that's um, elevation of what we call the celebrity industrial complex. As we know, celebrity is a confluence between like capitalism and mass media, right? So essentially they commodify their reputation and much of what they do is performance and advertising, advertisement. So I'm, I'm viewing it through that lens. I can't pretend to be surprised. I would say when I woke up and I heard the news, various Stephen A. Smith memes went off in my head. If this happens, Max, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. I think uh, I'm not going to pretend to know what's in his heart. So I can only go by what he's saying. And as you guys have seen through the Forbes article, a lot of it's crazy. So I'm evaluating it from a perspective where I'm not trying to tear the man down. However, I'm trying to bring attention to the fact that we often take celebrities as authorities on a wide variety of subjects, right? So for Kanye, he's had a lot of influence in music and fashion. Um, However, I would argue that these are subjective endeavors, right? So for music, 
of course, like there's there's a subjectivity to music. I think he makes great music. People don't have to agree, but he has 21 Grammys. So he's 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 shown that he has accolades when it comes to music. When it comes to fashion, really successful, right? With his shoe brand, um, uh, with his uh, fashion line, like he's carved out space for himself. And I was 100% with him in those pursuits. So uh, Kanye has been outspoken about how black artists are unfairly recognized at the Grammys. I know no one aside from Macklemore's immediate friends and family thought he should have won over Kendrick Lamar that year in 2014. So the man has a point there and how gatekeeping worked in high fashion. And I was rocking with him on, but again, those are subjective pursuits. You guys can't just shut him down. Now, there's the difference between those areas and government administration. That's a whole new ballgame. With the responsibilities associated with uh, the presidency. I feel as though what has Kanye done that he is in a position to handle all those responsibilities. So when I'm talking about the celebrity industrial complex, partly it's on the media side too, because they jump on it and give him attention all over your newsfeed. Kanye is running for president. Let's interview him. What does he think about this? What does he think about that? Right? Before it was gossip columns, right? Entertainment magazines and quick snippets on the news. Now social media has amplified that to another degree. So any celebrity's opinion on anything is just shared on a whim and their audience listens. When it comes to celebrities seeking attention, this is part of their brand. So it's not surprising. Seeking attention and administering like government responsibilities are two different things. And I'll end off with this. When Kanye announced, it reminds me of Malcolm X's um, interview where he questioned whether celebrities should be positioned as leaders in the black community. And he talks specifically about entertainers and he said that singers and comedians should not be the leaders. And I think I agree with him because even when they're well-intentioned, unless they've studied topics, unless they've gotten to know uh, the issues, unless they come with concrete plans, their best use of their platform is to elevate the voices of the people that have been doing work, right? Kanye said, when they asked him, how are you going to govern? The man said, I'm going to use a Wakanda model. What the f is that? Nobody knows. Like, so are you giving him the, the, the keys to the most powerful office in the world? And Trump, I feel like was a mistake. You don't cancel out like a mistake with another mistake. And that's like, I, I went on a rant. So I hope I lived up to Lerone's like rant <laughs> moment from last episode. I just get tired of it because I feel like a lot of people feel the same way where it's like celebrities will just say something and everybody's running behind what the celebrity says. And you're just like, why do we associate so much time and effort with breaking down every single opinion that they have? Elon Musk says, yeah, I support Kanye West. Elon Musk is a billionaire. Does he have as much to lose as uh, communities that are impoverished? No, he's willing to go through a Kanye experiment. You know what I mean? But like, can, 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 other people who are on the margins be uh, afforded that same like um, privilege to see whether or not Kanye works out? No. So I feel like it's irresponsible sometimes what celebrities do with their platform. And you see they backtrack. So Elon Musk, after Kanye West started saying some crazy stuff, has backtracked and said, oh, I'm going to have to take a look at his positions. There might be differences between us. I think people should reflect on when a celebrity speaks on an issue, you have to do the critical work of asking what is their expertise in commenting on this issue? If yeah. you're, are you going to vote for Kanye if Kanye wasn't Kanye? If Kanye was a guy on the street, if Kanye ran the most successful like car wash of all time, does that necessarily make him a candidate to become a president? And I feel like people need to actually go through that thought process instead of running with these announcements. Yeah, and that was a that was a main justification when Trump was running for president was that that was kind of his the criteria for what made him qualified was because he ran successful business empires, which is questionable um, if you look at uh -huh. uh, if you look at it in closer detail in his track record. Um, but that was what qualified him to, to to run for office. One of the main reasons for his support for Trump that he's always continuously talked about and mentioned again and again as that race was happening in 2016 was that he felt that Obama had to toe a line because as a black man, he could not fail. He could not be seen to be doing certain things. He had to always be the picture perfect. Whereas with Trump, he felt like he could do whatever he wanted, say whatever he wanted. And he identified with that because so many people in music, in rap music, just wanted him to shut up and produce 
and not be a rapper. Nobody believed in that aspect. And he, as you were mentioning, is continuously made his entire identity center around overcoming whatever anybody flings at you. Obstacles. Okay, they say that I can't I can't rap and I'm going to make sure that I that I put myself in all these spaces and overcome this situation. Right? He's credited with changing or moving things away from our subject matters in rap music away from the more gangster image, just something a little bit more streamlined where more topics can get discussed. And a lot of that is because he forced a barrier open. He feels that his successes equate in music, in entertainment, in fashion. He had to go through an internship in Fendi with Virgil, who is now the head of uh, Louis Vuitton menswear, and him now being a billionaire in the Yeezy space. These things that are inter that just bring more of an entertainment value, he feels, can equate with politics and policies that govern people's lives. There's a lot of dangerous thinking there, because as we see with what Trump is doing ever since the day he got into office, yeah. you need to know what you are doing when you're signing off on policies you need to know how they adversely affect people you can't just be going off of pleasing your 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 support base kanye is the same that when he's talking about in this forbes article when people ask him about policy he he can't really speak to it he doesn't know anything about policy he brings he brings up things like design he has said multiple times he's not aware he doesn't pay attention to policy and policy is the cornerstone of uh, a presidential bid and a presidential tenure. There's a lot going on, but I don't think... Um, if I could mm, just plug in. Bad. I agree with... It's obvious that we're not trying to demonize the man. I agree with his um, premise that he feels that the Democratic Party has taken a black vote for granted. So he right. does have a point there. The Democratic Party, instead of giving a vision to the black community saying or emphasizing the vision or making that more mainstream, I think the approach is like, look, Trump is racist. He's bad for you guys. So try us. It can't be any worse. The black community has to hold the Democratic Party to a higher standard because some of the most damaging policies that have inflict have been inflicted on the black community came from the Democratic Party. I, I think Kanye has a point there. And I feel like if he spent his time elevating that message, it would resonate more with people. So he almost does a disservice because I feel like that's his main point. And that's why he's so loud about being a Trump supporter is he feels like he's being boxed in. Like if he's not a Democratic supporter, he will be looked at as less than. And our community is, is not homogenous. We do have uh, differences in opinions. I don't think we need to shut down black Republicans. However, I feel like he's misusing his celebrity status and that's my problem. Okay, so yeah. I need a minute with this. I, I had a similar response to this question that Hirsch had in terms of um, viewing it less from the perspective of who Kanye West is and why he's running for president and more so how celebrity culture has even made this possible, right? So I'll start by saying that I do think Kanye West is well-intentioned. I think Kanye West is an incredibly sincere individual. Does that mean he should be running for president? We've had a number of celebrities throughout the years who have run for political office, from the Jesse Venturas, Ronald Reagan, most notably, to um, Schwarzenegger. The Rock. Schwarzenegger, uh, The yep. Rock has aspirations of becoming president. He's he stated that publicly. Will Smith has stated that publicly. You asked the question initially. You said, "Is this possible? Can he become president?" And my response to that is, in the immortal words of Kevin K.G. Garnett, from what I've seen in recent years, anything is possible. Okay, so why is this happening? I think people are looking at their options. So they're looking at 45 um, and they're looking at Joe Biden. A lot of times with a two-party system, people feel boxed in to vote for the lesser of two evils. Because you do have a, in terms of voting, we do have the choice to vote for whoever we want to, but realistically, it's for the Democratic Party and whoever the nominee is for the Republican Party. Inserting a celebrity into that space, uh, it shakes things up a bit. Now, with people's inclination now to look at celebrities for leadership, I guess that's just uh, people possibly stating their discontent with the two-party system or the options that are available to them. So they're gravitating to the people who they know, who they celebrate, who they glorify, right? Uh, with that being said, is that the best thing? Um, I think when people look at Kanye West, they think of someone who thinks outside of the box, who will give them uh, non-traditional ways of dealing with the problems that we face as a society. That was the allure of Donald Trump to an extent, that the fact that he was a businessman, he was. people felt that this would give something new as opposed to what they've been accustomed to. I question that because 
that the whole notion of thinking outside of the box, we have to remember that the box was created. The, the box didn't just appear, the, the, the box that we're speaking about. The box was created after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of trial and error. People looked at what worked and what didn't work, right? And we've come into this space where we know the best person or the best type of individual who should lead, right? Someone who's able to take complex problems and take uh, information from various sources and sift through that information and make the best decision for everyone. Is a celebrity able to do that? Can a celebrity disconnect themselves from their own uh, celebrity and hype to take care of people Altogether, I, I don't know. I, I question that. With a celebrity who has access to a wide audience, they're able to kind of uh, get past the message and get to a point where it's just about their connection with the audience. So it's not really about what they're saying. It's about who they are and how people see them through that lens of celebrity. And I think that's dangerous. Celebrities really live a different life from the average human being. There's often a disconnect with celebrities and the common man that you need as a politician to be able to solve the issues of the common man, right? So I want to say that, that the box exists for a reason. So yeah, we can deviate slightly from, the, from what that box is and get people who think outside of the box, but varying too far away from that box, I think is dangerous. Like not to rag on Kanye, because I think Kanye is a, as I said before, a very well-intentioned, but it scares me to think that someone who values free thinking so much can potentially wake up one morning and just decide, you know what, you're my national security advisor. I feel like you're stifling my freedom of thought. I really think we should go to war today. Like, I don't want to listen to you. I'm, I'm, I need to think freely. Um, <laughs> that scares me, right? Someone, and I think the key characteristic of a leader, you don't have to be an academic to the 10th degree. You don't have to be someone who's a, a professor in any regard. You just have to be someone, because you'll have expert advisors anyway. You yeah. have to be someone who's able to make sound decisions um, under um, sometimes not the most ideal circumstances, because circumstances are never ideal. So I think it's dangerous that we've gotten to this place. In terms of what it means, I don't know. But I think it's worth examining why this is actually a possibility. I'll say this. There's a movie I watched. They said that back in the days of the Roman Empire, there was an emperor or a Caesar, right, who would have someone actually follow them to, to whisper in their ear, you are just a man. You are just a man. And they saw value in that because as a leader, you sometimes get caught up in your own hype and you forget what you essentially were, uh, your essential role is as a leader, which is to take care of the social good, everyone, right? We need to revisit the existing political system, but it also means that we need to, um, I believe, look at what makes us so eager to gravitate to celebrities. Why is it we feel that a musician can step into the place of someone who should be analyzing uh, global security or economics, right? Yeah. The fact that this is actually a possibility. It's somewhat scary. It's interesting also the fact that uh, I think it's indicative that we're looking for something else. We, we recognize that uh, the current two-party system does not work. We need other viable alternatives, like not just someone running as an independent who has no chance of becoming president, but some uh, a space where we kind of reimagine the political system, right? Yeah, and, and collectively, I think we're not saying that... Um... Well, we're, we are saying he's not fit for, for being president. We're not demonizing him. There's obviously very objective, rational reasons that we're giving. I think there's a role that he can play, given his, his success uh, as a musician, as a producer, as a fashion mogul, that he can play in relations to politics in terms of improving uh, things in the U.S. But it's, I think it's a long time from now until he can, he can actually take that take that position as office. So Kanye, if you're listening to this, we're not demonizing you. We're just advising that there's a few things that you need to consider before you put your name in the hat. I want to move on to our last topic. And the focus is going to be on mental health, which, you know, we, we kind of touched on with, with Kanye. And this is, this is a topic that's very, very dear to me. 
Ijaz Chowdhury and Regis Korchinski Packet died less than four weeks apart in, in separate encounters with Toronto area police. Both tragedies are a part of a growing list of ethnic minorities across Canada who've been killed by the police during wellness checks on their mental health. And in many countries outside of Canada and even in the U.S., police are usually the last resort for mental health crises. But in the U.S. and Canada, they're obviously the, and as we've seen in these two incidents, they're usually the first to respond. Hirsch, uh, we'd love to just, you know, for our audience, uh, help them understand, you know, what's wrong with having police being the first responders to mental health wellness checks? The worry is during a mental health crisis, obviously someone is in dire distress, right? So with regards to this coming up in the news, I think partly has to do with the irony of what's called the wellness check, right? So the question becomes, how did you go for a wellness check and it ends up with somebody losing their life? Jarring uh, when you think about it, right? Because when you send an officer, um, <clears throat> because of maybe uh, the relationships uh, that they have with the communities that are experiencing these uh, mental health crises, sometimes adversarial in nature, a person arrives who has a weapon, I feel like it's a pressure cooker situation, right? So this person is already going through a crisis. And we all know when an officer stops you without any mental health issues, right? Your heart starts racing, you start analyzing your setting, you're, you're in a heightened sense of alert. So that's without any sort of mental health issues. And it's a very tense situation, right? The consequences for dealing with police and it ending up negatively um, are much more dire than the average like a public servant, right? So you're not, when, when you go into a government office to file some paperwork, you're not worried about whether or not your life is on the line and in the balance. So I think the issue is that statistics show that there's heightened levels of aggression when it comes to minority communities and, and the way the police perceive them as a threat. So that's without any mental health issues. So when you have a mental health issue, um, that person might not even be, um, uh, I think in the case of HS Chowdhury, um, a threat to the officer. It seems like they're more of a threat to themselves, right? This guy was kind of locked in the house. I'll, uh, I'll have to look back, but I don't think there was anybody in the, in the house. So the question becomes, why do you have to barge in and create a, a heightened situation? Like what's the need even for that? The person is kind of isolated. Why don't you leave them? seek out mental health resources, but when you treat it as a SWAT mission and come up through the balcony and bust in through the door, um, and then this guy ends up uh, being shot, the community has a right to grieve and, and demand answers. And it wasn't a good look for uh, Doug Ford when he came into power to cut uh, funding towards healthcare and, and mental health services, right? So like if somebody's going through a mental health crisis, you treat them as a patient instead of a perpetrator. I know there are certain situations where they might be wielding um, a, a, a weapon, but a lot of the times um, the answer for that should be de-escalation unless somebody else's life is, is directly jeopardized. I feel like the police are uh, mishandling a lot of these cases and, then that, and that's why we keep seeing them uh, come up in the news again and again and again. And there's so many that's not reported. Um, when I was prepping for today's episode, there were so many incidents in the U.S. where not even people who suffer from from mental health um, challenges, but people that are, are are disabled, right? Like there was an incident in Oklahoma City where a guy that was deaf was killed by the cops because he was holding a rod that he used to uh, scare, like to to get dogs away from him. Even when you say it out loud, it, it's a cop coming in for a wellness check. It just yeah. sounds. If we know that that puts someone at a heightened risk, why are we continuing to do the wrong thing? If there's general acceptance that it is the wrong thing and that you know, police unions feel that they're overworked and you know they deserve more money for what they are doing and you know like fair enough yeah get paid more money if you're willing to take the training to be experts in that right recently Jagmeet Singh criticized RCMP for you know how they handled the Rideau Hall uh, intruder right guy smashes his car through barricades look at the prime minister governor general right he's armed with a rifle and you know people have have said you know many times like hey yeah because he's white that got handled a lot differently than if he, maybe he was you know racialized or you know maybe if he was a Muslim or if he was even black right like 
there are different ways that typically that ends, right? And so, you know, and I have my own criticisms about the NDP party and like, you know, Jagmeet saying, you know, things that he said in the past and whatever, right? But I think he was right to raise this as a conversation. Like there are indigenous people that are dying. And there was recently someone in BC who died as a result of a wellness check. Uh, an indigenous person at the hands of the RCFP and it's like literally days mm-hmm. in between have an indigenous person who's dying in a wellness check and you have the RCMP and are mm-hmm. apprehending a man looking and trying to kill the, pre- the prime minister of the country and one survives and one does not right and it's you know that juxtaposition that we are actually trying to talk about right and the response that someone like Jagmeet Singh gets from saying something like that it's I oh my goodness how could he have said that it's like the most offensive and they're asking him to redact his statement. These aren't outlandish claims, right? Um, but here in Canada, it's like, we cannot accept that there's racism. In the United States, they accept that there's racism. It's their unwillingness to change. That's the problem. And I think that it's good that we're having these conversations now that we see these ha- things basically happening in real time. You know, we're having the conversations. It's awful that people are being put in harm's way and people are still dying. And, you know, I know of a situation myself when I was growing up, I knew a guy they say he died by a suicide, but it was a wellness check. Um, and this is before Twitter. This is before, you know, this is this is before Facebook, actually, right? With the spread of information and how social media kind of picks up on these things. Talking about mental health. I think we can all do a little bit better. I know I can. I say some things sometimes and I'm like, I catch myself saying, and I'm like, should I be really saying that, right? Should I be really thinking that way, right? So I think we can all do a little bit better. And I think um, the fact that we're getting closer to everyone being a part of this conversation is a good thing. But again, like, how do we address, you know, people who think that, like, I just saw a Donald Trump ad the other day. It, it was like a phone ringing off the hook in a police station. And it's like, no one's here to take your call because they defunded the police and it's like that's not what defunding the police really looks like it means instead of 1.3 billion going to the police you get 1.2 billion going to the police and 100 million gets allocated to mental health resources like do you really think the difference between one point now let's judge like you could even go into why do they even need 1.3 billion to begin with and police are unwilling to have that conversation but then when we say okay well we need to find some money for mental health resources so it's kind of just in this like self-defeating cyclical kind of argument that you know they keep taking you on it's like someone has to break that cycle you know and say you know what yeah they're not qualified bring somebody else into the picture it's almost that they're trained from the get-go to to react to things in a tactical or in an aggressive manner and as we were just saying you know over here in canada we like to pretend that these things don't happen and africville didn't happen the, the indigenous schools didn't happen according to many canadians who don't want to revisit any of these realities so as long as these systemic issues are present in the, the systems that govern us as well as the police force that we are supposed to defend for for safety then these issues will persist. I try to look at, uh, I try to think sometimes if I were a police officer and I were called in to take care of a situation where I was, someone is unwell and I, I have to take care of them, I, I have to quell the situation, how would I respond if someone was being erratic or just exhibiting issues that characteristics of someone who's unwell, right? And I have to tell you, I don't think I've ever seen any iteration of that scenario or I've, I've ever seen any scenario where i would feel like i have to use lethal force if the person doesn't have a gun right um whenever i see these situations happen i always think to myself like whatever happened to keeping your distance and shooting someone in the leg whatever happened to taser whatever happened to all these other tools to de-escalate right it seems and i agree with with uh, the point batter made previously that officers seem to be more inclined to deal with to de-escalate these situations depending on who it is it seems that if it's a well-off person or if the person is uh, white there seems to be more of an effort to not kill them as opposed to if it's someone a person of color i think we have to examine that there are countries in the world where police officers don't even carry guns when you, if you have a gun a firearm on you like it naturally there's something about it that naturally tends to heighten the tension in, in, in an interaction because you know you have something available to you that could end a life, right? And it's, uh, it's scary to think that, you know, you could have a family member that may just be having an episode or, or just a mental health issue and they could be killed because someone was scared and they had a gun. 
I agree with everything that's said. I, I do think it's important that this is getting attention now that perhaps police officers need more training or perhaps it needs to be someone else, some a, med, a mental health professional going to these areas and trying to quell these situations. I do think police officers, uh, I, I, I do think they get a bad rap sometimes because certain situations may certain situations may warrant using your firearm, but it's hard for me to envision a scenario that if someone does not have a gun and let's say they're wielding a knife or they're wielding some type of weapon, like some type of inanimate object, and I'm a fair distance away from them. Like if you, if you look at the scenario that happened in Mississauga recently, I think this is what sparked this conversation. They were a fair distance away from that gentleman. They opened the door and they just got on the balcony and they fired off like, I believe around 10 shots or something like that. Like, they didn't really take that many shots to to get this. Like I just, it, it really, I really struggle to understand why sometimes like the there's we're so quick to go to lethal force, right? So this is definitely something that needs to be discussed and and, and examined further. I don't think police officers are just you know reckless rogue agents that just like doing these things. I, I think they have their side of the story and they see it a certain kind of way. But even me trying to empathize and put myself in their shoes and put myself in these scenarios, like if I sign up for a job where um, I know my life's going to be on the line and I know I'll be put in these situations, it has to be, you have to be someone who values life more so than anyone, more so than the average person. I think as cheesy as it sounds, that old Spider-Man quote uh, is relevant. With great power comes great responsibility. You have people's lives in your hands, right? You have to be able to deal with these situations in a manner that doesn't result in a death, right? So shoot someone in the leg, man. Like, I just, it, it really, I can't understand it. I try to put myself in, in the shoes of a police officer, and sometimes I just don't see how these situations turn out the way they do. Um, and there are countries, it's not like we don't have examples of countries that deal with it better than we do, right? Mm -hmm. there, are, there are European countries that give us a template for how to do it, right? And they're very successful. They have less... The yeah. crime rate is their crime rates yeah. are, are lower than ours. Their incarceration rates are lower than ours, and they do a better job of dealing with these situations. So why is it so hard to transpose some of those techniques to mm -hmm. our country? It, it yeah. kind of uh, it baffles me to an extent. So yeah, the challenge yeah. is there's gun ownership. The culture of gun ownership is different too between the North American context and the European context, right? So America, if you show up without a gun, more than likely the person you're showing up to, if it's a police call, may have a weapon. That's just something to think about. That's a good point. Yeah, and I think these incidents reveal, and it's it's important that we're talking about it, but it, it represents a society that hasn't or isn't properly equipped to talk about mental health, right? We're, we're, we're not in a position, and we have a long ways to go before we can see improvements. Now we're gonna end it there, gents. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for your perspectives. For our listeners, thank you for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoyed what you heard on today's episode of Say Word, please comment, like, share, and subscribe. Simple steps for support go a long way. We hope you found this insightful. We hope it made you think, and we look forward to having you join us for our next episode. Be safe, everyone. All right, guys. Bye. All right, guys. All right, cool, cool. All right, peace. Peace. Yes, bye. Bye.